Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. We're happy to report this week that we have, well, we didn't, Michael did, finally found the bug with our podcast not loading up, so you should have plenty to catch up on from the last several weeks that haven't come to the subscribers. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And make sure you're getting notifications of uh, the new podcasts as they come up. But we have had trouble with the uh, the newer ones getting uploaded. And Michael, thank you very much for getting that taken care of. I was notified today that there were six that were kind of in the queue waiting waiting to uh, be listened to and consumed. That's so amazing. The, yeah, it's been six weeks since we've had one load on the uh, on the podcast iPod, or excuse me, Apple podcast app, and also Spotify. So I'm hoping that that fixed it on both. Have you guys heard any feedback on that? I think it Uh, did fix it on both. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I haven't heard anything direct, but I went and checked today as well. And I had already went and manually loaded them. So I don't know if I can really see it until, um, you know, until we release another show. But it sounds like it's very promising from everything I'm hearing. So that's awesome because there's a lot of people that were wondering if we were even still doing this. So, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the whole thing behind it, it was just, it's so frustrating because it's just one little thing that prevented all those from loading. And it wasn't even, it was the name of one of our podcasts had a character in it that was kind of hidden. And that was causing it to not be read by I, Apple Podcasts. And then that, in turn, stopped the whole chain of the automatic uploads. It was crazy. Wow. So, I mean, it's wow. you, you live and learn, and I guess I can look out for that in the future. But I would have never, in a million years, I would have never said it was just the way we named a podcast as opposed to, like, a checkbox that I didn't find or, you know, somebody somewhere on some web service that didn't have a checkbox. I don't know. I just... You know, I ended up writing a really long email to our web provider, and they're the ones who found it for us. So big oh. thanks to those guys for yeah, – I just thought awesome. it would work itself out too. You know, I, I should have wrote that three weeks ago. But I just thought, <laughs> you know, it was probably just a bug in the system. And, man. So anyway, yeah, I'm yeah. glad we got it figured out. Well, now some now the listeners have a, about six hours worth of uh, – material to fill up their drive when they're on their next adventure right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah there's some good shows in there too there, Absolutely. there are some great ones all right so tonight what we're going to do we got michael coming to us from colorado uh jason coming to us at home from utah i'm coming to you from wyoming and it's pretty much the same everywhere i believe it is sweltering hot and dry um we, we have had a little bit of rain here finally and last night was a torrential downpour, but it only lasted for about 10 minutes. Uh, but man, it put down some rain in a hurry. Um, how about you guys? Is it still dry? We've had we've seen a lot of wildfires already. Last year, we didn't have a, our, actually the Wyoming fire crews, almost 100% of them ended up in Alaska, Alaska last summer. Uh, because there were so many fires up there and they needed help up there and we didn't have anything in the Rocky Mountain West or at least in our region but it has started quickly this year yeah yeah same here it was we've got I think four major fires here burning in Utah and you know it was a week ago or so I think we were talking about how chilly it was and how nice it was it was you know high 60s low 70s and you know in the morning you're wearing a sweater or a sweatshirt or a hoodie or something and then you know, this last weekend, I was able to get out and go riding my four-wheelers with the family, and, you know, it's 96 degrees. It feels like 120 because of the temperature change we've just gone through, you know. <laughs> I got a little bit too much sun and a little bit not enough water, I think, and, it, you know, that got me a little bit of uh, some heat stroke, I think, actually. But So just a nice reminder to everybody to make sure you're 
drinking more than you think you need to when you're out there in the heat. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's been kind of more crazy. water, yeah. drinking more water than you think that, you need. Oh, to. didn't, didn't I say that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought I said, okay, let me clarify. <laughs> it's the same in Colorado. The exact same. I mean, we get what you get, Jason. I think we just get that same flow. Actually, we all, we're all pretty close. So I think it's just that same high pressure that's building up. And if you look at the app, it's, two weeks of this they're saying especially on the news you know expect 90 to 100 every day for the next two weeks ready to hit the mountains that's the nice thing about living out his way though right Right. is when it gets that way you can cool off yep get up high and cool off which is a nice nice little you know benefit but that's where the critters are anyway so we might as well be there too right that's right (laughs) (laughs) so what we're going to do tonight we've received several uh questions from listeners. So we're going to go through and kind of cherry pick a few of those. Um, I'm going to read the questions to you, let you know who they're from. And then we're going to try to, as best we can, answer those questions. Uh, The first one that I've got, and this is a multi-parter, so bear with me as I read this. Uh, This is coming from Tim Finn from Strong, Maine. So we've got, as far as I know, our first Well, actually, it wouldn't be true. I was going to say first main listener, but we've got a couple others that are up there. Uh, It says, I love the show more from the travel and adventure portion. Love hearing the stories about how certain animals were found and what it took to, quote unquote, get the shot. Technical portion is over my head. But this summer, I bought my 17-year-old son a Canon Rebel uh, T7 DSLR and a few lenses. And I'm going to shorten this a little bit. It says, I try to remind him that he needs to be patient, related to how Mike mentioned that he had a 9-to-5 job for a long time before he could, quote-unquote, go pro. Jason and Ron still do. Any advice I could provide him on the following? First question, or first part of this, is training. Any way to get any training in wildlife outdoor photography? Is it just uh, reading and YouTube videos, or is there anything else that you can recommend? And I thought that this was a this was a real good one to start it out with because I think a lot of people have the same question: Where can I go to get help? You know, we talk about uh, mentors often, and finding somebody that can be that photography mentor for uh, young people, especially, but even adults if they're just getting into the art of photography. And I think you know, checking for a local camera club, go to your local camera shop and look for whose pictures are hanging on the wall that might be a good place to start if they're not willing to mentor then at least they may be able to point you in the right direction oftentimes camera shops will have good recommendations for that as well Um, but also i would say you know next to well and even actually maybe before a camera and a lens depending on what's available in your area is find a workshop. And some of these workshops, if you check uh, Canon, they have a lot of workshops where they will bring all of the equipment and provide instruction. So check your, you know, your Canon um, website, especially for your area. And a lot of times those kind of things are available and it's well worth spending a couple hundred dollars to go try some equipment You know, they'll let you use everything from the entry level to the professional level equipment and give you instruction on how to use that. You're going to come back with some images, but more than that, you're going to come back with, you know, probably a year's worth of information just from a a weekend event. So what about you guys? What do you, where would you guide somebody to go for information that's just starting out? Um. Yeah, I think that's a good, a really good point. I would just bring up the the camera club option again. Um, I know the one that's here local, the Ogden Camera Club, and there's some uh, there's one in about every town here in Salt in the Salt Lake area, and they do quite a few events. I mean, they meet I think face to face, maybe not so much right now, but in generally, they meet face to face and have meetings once a month or every so often, um, and a lot of times they actually meet in the field and go out and shoot together. And that's a really good opportunity to maybe get some of that, um, you know, in-person camera assistance and help from other photographers that might know a little bit more. 
it's also a great way to kind of get out in the field and maybe shoot some species that you have not shot before and to also um, learn a little bit about the behaviors of the critters that you that you might want to go photograph and and what to look for as far as going and finding other places to find that same um, animal that you might be photographing and you know kind of what to look for to go find different ones um, the other thing I would maybe bring up is I know there's people out there that offer um, you know those one hour like for me I, I mentioned it it was a local camera shop and it's not so common anymore unfortunately because a lot of those local camera shops have gone out of business unfortunately but um, that's another reason why I really believe in supporting your local camera shops by the way but um, you can get some benefit in just doing like a one-hour training session, and they will actually spend an hour with you. Or find a tour person like Kate and Adam, for example, that do tours. Um, sometimes, I'm not sure if Kate and Adam are in this situation. I think they are. But sometimes if you tell them specifically what you're looking for, you know, you can spend a day with them shooting animals and getting some great opportunities, as well as getting some information about your camera, how to set it up properly, you know, how to frame and compose your shots. Um, you can get a lot of information from just doing a one-day workshop like that with a with somebody like Kate and Adam, for example. And there's lots of options. It doesn't have to be in Yellowstone. It doesn't have to be necessarily with Kate and Adam. It could be, you know, locally there. I'm sure there's some folks that might be able to offer something like that to help you out. Um, and then again, you know, I, I, you know, for me personally, the YouTube thing was huge. And uh, you know, I know that's it's tough. You know, you dig through and you find some YouTube stuff, but again. Look for those opportunities to get out and shoot things other than just wildlife. You know, we've talked about that before a little bit, but I think that's huge. I mean, got it. You know, shoot your pets. You know, take the dog to the park and, you know, let your um, your friend or your your dad or your significant other or whatever throw a frisbee or a ball for the dog and try to, you know, capture that dog running across and catching that frisbee or ball or whatever and running back with that ball in their mouth and try to just capture different things. And that teaches you a lot about you know, the settings and the, the photography triangle, if you will, and, you know, what, what settings to adjust to, to accomplish different types of um, situations. But those are, those are kind of the things that come to my mind. I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Uh, I think the photo clubs is by far and away the best thing that happened to me growing up in this business is, and the big thing was, is we didn't go out and shoot as much, you know, as a group, but what we did or what that camera club did is they would have a critique at every, every one of the meetings and keep in mind, you have to have really thick skin because a lot of this, you know, <laughs> they can tear you up and you, you just got to say, you know, I'm just learning and, and just take all that criticism and use it in a positive way to make, you know, I used to get super frustrated, you know, I'd be really super proud of a picture and then you put it up on the screen. I think they let you put up three different pictures. And you, you were super excited and they're going to put one of yours up and then it just gets, you know, just, they just tear it up. But <laughs> if you can make it through that, then, and take all the stuff that they talked about and try to apply that in your next shoot, it made me way better, way faster. And then the other thing too, is the networking. If you can get in there and meet some of these people, cause it's not all just a critique. You spend a little bit of time you know, just talking with everybody before the meeting, you get to see where other people are shooting, what animals are shooting or what locations are shooting. So that gives you some opportunities to find out new places. And then what I used to do, if I found somebody that was really good and I, you know, I would just say, Hey, would you mind if I tag it? Would it be okay if I tagged along? And that provides some of that mentorship, you know, whether or not you get a long-term friendship out of it or not, even if you could just go out for one time, with somebody that actually knows the location or knows the species or knows whatever, that is going to help a ton with just getting you where you're going. I was fortunate and I found three or four guys that were willing to take me out on a regular basis. And that just helped a lot. Just finding the local stuff, whether it was mule deer or badgers or hummingbirds or whatever it was, that was, that was the best thing for me. But the critiques were probably some of the best, that was the best medicine that I could have got, you know, but it was hard. I mean, they just, you'd think you're doing so good. And then someone just totally slams every picture you're putting up there. But, you know, you, you deal with that for like a year, you will definitely see your photography improve. As, yeah. As long as you take it in, don't, don't shut yourself off when you hear something negative because they're, 
they're giving you that feedback in a constructive manner. They want to help you improve. And so make sure you're paying attention and take in what's being said and then try to, you know, take notes and carry that stuff over in the field. But I would say the same thing. It's, it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes when you think you've made it <laughs> and you find out you haven't. And the other thing to say is it's all subjective, right? So you can't take everything that everybody says and make it their picture. You still have to make it your picture. So don't, don't let it get you down because if you like it, that's ultimately, that's what's important. But if you're going to try to make it in the business, like they were alluding alluding to in the question, then you really got to adhere to some, you know, what do you call it? Just some guidelines as far as, you know, certain magazines are only going to publish a certain quality of picture, right? And it has to have all the elements. Do you have the eye shine? Do you have the light in your favor? Do you have, you know, the pose? Do you have, did you leave enough crop in the picture to, to put this stuff on the cover of a magazine? Did you do all that stuff that needs to be done? And that's a lot of the criticism that you would get through the photo club. I'll tell you how to make it at least a 10 to 20% jump in how you feel about your own photography unfollow Jason Loftus at Untamed Images. And then you'll, if you're not seeing his stuff, you'll start to feel better about yours. Oh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> oh, you're so full of it. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next... Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we ever arrived by the way. Right. No, if you feel like you've arrived, just a side not. note, you know, just you, you, you might, if you feel like you've arrived, you might want to think about putting it down. So, uh, that's a really good point. I've been doing yep. this for 20 plus years and I learn something new all the time or a behavior or whatever it is. It's like, I didn't know. I didn't think it was going to go down like that. Or I didn't think that this kind of picture would look good. The other thing now is the equipment is so good that you yeah. have to be really good to, to set yourself apart. You know, the equipment, what people can take with a camera nowadays right out of the box is probably better than anything I was shooting for the first five or six years of what I was doing. I was actually just looking earlier before we jumped on this podcast, I was looking for some images and I ran across a trip that I did to Katmai in 2003 and I was shooting with a, well, the, the file, I don't even remember what I was shooting with, but the file name, the file folder name said Canon 520. Was there a Canon 520 digital camera? There must have been. So I'm looking at my time. I'm looking at this and I'm looking through the images and I'm looking at images that I know I would have nailed at this point, right? With light and ISO and all this stuff. But back then the ISO quality wasn't there. So you got a really pretty early morning shot of a sow and a cub and it's, you know, they're just motion blur just because I had to have been shooting at such a slow shutter speed that it wasn't going to happen. So that being said, these cameras nowadays shoot really well right out of the box. So now you've got to just take it so many steps above that to become noticed and to actually make it a living in this sort of a career. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just maybe bring up one more point to that because I've seen it firsthand, right? I mean, I've seen a number of people that I follow and have worked, you know, have talked to on Instagram and shot within the field even that have only been doing this for a year or two now and the learning curve is just so shortened it's just insane to me and so and and i'm not trying to take any credit away from them and their abilities believe me but there's definitely something to be said for that learning curve being shortened and to your point mike yeah i mean anymore it really is becoming the equipment's becoming so good that a lot of people can pick up a decent you know a decent setup and start making really good images and so for yourself to stand out, you really do have to think about how, what, you know, how is yours going to be different and how are you going to make it stand apart? So, so the biggest trick to be learned here is if you're in the field and you see Jason, you follow <laughs> him because he's got that light down. So you just kind of walk and don't follow him because that might bug him, but just watch him. Just watch how he looks at the light before he even picks up. Before he even looks through the viewfinder, he's dialing in, where am I going to go to get the best light at, and predicting what might happen and where he needs to be. That Yeah, you, yeah, you guys kill me, but 
<laughs> but there is a lot to that for sure, right? I mean, that's a that's a big part of the what comes with the experience, I think, right? So yeah, that's what's going to separate you those things from the equipment. Yeah. You know, that takes it yeah. to the next level above what the equipment can can do. So we've been talking, kind of touching on equipment, and to finish up Tim's question, um, he says that his son seems to be frustrated that most people are using equipment that he won't be able to afford for a long time. Any advice on how to make the most of what you got? I have it, but I'm going to save it till after you guys comment. Well, I'll, I'll uh, sorry, Mike, do you want to go? No, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I've, I actually had this conversation with somebody just real recently and, you know, somebody's talking to me and asking me those very questions about um, equipment. And it kind of frustrates me a little bit because, I mean, all of us want the latest and greatest, but I promise you that if you understand photography, you can pick up the Nikon side, for example, there's, they make a D3500. It's an, an out of the box camera that's, it's very, very entry-level DSLR, I think you can get the camera with two lenses in a kit for about five or six hundred bucks. And if you understand the basics of photography, you can take really good images with that camera, right? It's very capable. Now, it may not have as good a processor. It may not have as, you know, as fast of um, shutter speeds, and it may not be able to, excuse me, perform as well at lower ISOs and some of those little things. And in my mind, those are the things that you really gain when you start really ramping up the quality of the camera. You know, you get the faster processors, you get the better shutter speeds and some of those kinds of things. You get the better focus systems and all that kind of stuff. But to say that you can't, you, you got to have that, you know, very, very expensive equipment to make good images is just baloney. I mean, I, as a matter of fact, I think it'd be fun for us to maybe do that as a challenge at some point, right, is to is to pick up a very entry-level, you know, set of different types of cameras and go out and try to make a, a good image with it. And I promise you, just because I know, you know, your guys' experience and my experience in that, that we can go and make good images with that setup. So, again, don't let that be your hang-up. Get the best equipment you can afford with the money you have. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with if you really are enjoying this, Stick with it, save some money, and maybe get that next level camera when you can afford it. But don't let that slow you down. Go out and practice and make images and do what you can within the the framework of the equipment that you have. And yes, it might limit you some, but don't let that be the factor that keeps you from learning how to shoot. Does that make sense? Total sense. And as Absolutely. far as the limit, what I was going to say is that's a good time to focus on focus on (laughs) that's a good time to concentrate on something that's fairly common you know so maybe you go down to your local wetland or you go find a a park where there's there's a lot of deer you know find something that's easier to shoot and then just make that camera work and you're going to get some stellar images don't try to go get a snow leopard or a (laughs) mountain lion you know work on stuff that you can actually get and build your portfolio or build your your experience that way and then as you can't afford the equipment then that might be the time to go after those <clears throat> dream species that you might want to try to get but that save that for later you know dream about it but but wait on it what i was going to say is going back to the you got to have thick skins comment suck it up buttercup we all <laughs> started somewhere we all started with what we could afford and, and likely it was more of an entry-level introduction to photographic equipment. I would, that, and to go along with what Mike was just saying, that's the opportunity for you to learn. So, I mean, tie in what we've all three said. You know, Jason was talking about getting good shots with entry-level equipment. Michael was talking about, you know, use what you have and take advantage of it. Go out to the easier spots. Basically, the difference between having the pro level to the entry level equipment is not necessarily, I mean, it is to a degree image quality, but more than anything, it's ease of use. And, you know, you get to a 1DX Mark III, you don't have to take your eye away from the viewfinder and you can reset anything on that camera you want and everything's kind of at the, the touch of a finger. You can move your focus point. You can adjust your ISO, you never have to take your eye away from the viewfinder. 
some of the entry-level cameras, it's a little bit tougher because you have to go through a menu or at least learn how to navigate that camera's controls. But that's the biggest difference. You know, they all take solid images. Um, and the other thing is save up your money. And if you're frustrated with equipment and you have something that, you know, you do want to do, you're going to a good location, rent better equipment. Yeah. But the, you know, the other thing that goes along with that is it takes time to learn how to use it and learn how to navigate it. So make sure you give yourself an extra couple of days. Don't just rent it the day of the shoot and go out and expect, you know, stellar results. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I, the, I agree wholeheartedly with what you guys, everything you guys said. Go ahead, Jason. No, I was just going to add one more thing. That's a really good point, Ron. Um, and it made me think of this too, is I, and when I was making my comments, I was thinking really of like new gear, right? But don't be afraid to go buy used camera equipment. You know, look for on your local classifieds for used equipment popping up. You can get some really good equipment. I can't remember who it was that just recently purchased a a D850 with they only had 200 shutters taken on it, and the guy bought it, had it, and just sat in a box after that for a couple years. And this person picked up this camera for about 1,100 bucks with 200 shutters. So, you wow. you know, that kind of stuff is out there. You know, you've just got to – and that – for those of you know, that's a brand-new camera. That's about a $3,300, $3,400 camera right now. So and, – and then, you know, there's other options too as far as refurbished equipment from places like B&H Photo and some of that stuff too. So don't just limit yourself to the newest option or, you know, brand-new gear either, especially if you're just starting. You know, definitely take a look at some of the used equipment out there and – and uh, that can help save some significant money and get you into the game with some a little bit better equipment quicker too. So, so Canon is about ready to release the camera to beat all cameras, right? That's what we're hearing, anyways, right? So if that's the case, yeah. there's going to be a lot of One DX Mark Threes for sale. There's going to be a lot of Sony <laughs> A7s for sale. There's going to be a lot that's of true. everything for sale. So, and they're all really good cameras. I'm still using a One DX Mark II. I never even bought the One DX Mark III. Would it help? I think it would. Do I need it? I couldn't justify spending another five or six or seven thousand bucks. I might have a Nikon D eight fifty for sale, but it's gonna be more than twelve hundred dollars. All right. Moving on. Thank you, Tim. Uh the next one's coming to us from a a longtime listener, one time podcast guest. Harlan Cooper and Harlan would like to know why we don't share our locations on the, on the podcast. And <laughs> if we, if everyone would go ahead and give out their favorite photography location. And by the way, Harlan's not the first one to ask this question. It's come <laughs> in from several people. He was just the most recent and we thought we'd have a little bit of fun with him on this one. <laughs> go ahead jason oh i get to go first oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put you squarely in the line of fire <laughs> yeah so in my answer what's the question i'm answering why we don't tell them or what well, our favorite spot the is? actual <laughs> the actual question is what is your favorite photography location okay all right so for me i think it's pretty easy and and I'm not going to give any coordinates out. Um, if Harden wants more information, he can call me and I might, you know, give, he can pay me for it if he wants it. But uh, <laughs> um, my favorite spot really is Yellowstone. Um, I think I've talked about that before. And I, I love it because of the diversity I can, I can have in that one location. I love it that I can shoot it multiple seasons. I love it that it's fairly close to me. I, you know, I'm a four or five hour drive and I can be there. Um, and that to me is just like the ultimate of, you know, what a guy's looking for, what a gal's looking for when they're looking for a, you know, a good location that they can visit time and time again. And the thing I really like about that too, is that when you spend, you can spend a lot of time in one location, you really learn a lot about that location and where to be and what time to be there. And, you know, what seasonally, what's the best thing to be looking for. And, you know, the, a lot about animal behavior and on and on and on. So for me, that's a pretty easy question, I think. And, uh, you know, to answer the other question you kind of asked, I'll just tell Harden right now, and he knows this, 
is that a lot of it's just putting your putting your time in and paying your dues too, right? So all of us have had to learn some of this stuff the hard way, and and there is no substitute for just going out and doing this, you know, just going out and learning it and trying things out. You know, we've said it multiple times when it whether it comes to learning how to shoot or whatever it is, learning a location. Sometimes the best thing to do is just you know, you know load up the car and and uh, take off and go figure it out. So, um, but yeah, that's that's probably my favorite spot. How about you, Michael? My favorite spot is Alaska, of course, and and based out of Anchorage is is pretty good because if you listen to our podcast, we've had so many people on from Alaska or who have shot in Alaska. Within a couple hours from Anchorage, you can be on loons, you can be on whales, you can be on all kinds of uh, big mammals. So it's just a good spot. But I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. If you really want to start doing your homework, and Jason talks about spending time. So there's a couple ways to spend time. You can spend time in your car and going out and exploring locations. And that is by far and away the best way to do it. Because one thing you want to do is you want to try to find your own location. You don't want to be that one person that just lines up with 50 other photographers on the road and are all shooting the same thing. Yeah, you, you might have the Tetons be really good for bears at a certain time of year, but is everybody getting the same shot? You know, they not, they're not getting the exact same shot, but they're getting similar shots. So what you can do is get out there and find that spot that, you know, just get away from the crowds because there's plenty of animals around. It just, you know, you just go after the low hanging fruit and it's hard to pass that kind of opportunity up, but sometimes it really benefits in the, in a good way. But what I would say is if you don't have the time to be out there in a car, you can get on social media and there's a lot of people that put locations on stuff. I'm not going to say who or where or when or whatever, but if you spend enough time, if you, let's say you see a picture of a, a white-tailed deer, you know, and you're like, man, that is a good-looking deer. Just look through the, the comments and see if somebody puts in a location. And they might be very general. It might say Colorado. It might say Nebraska. It might say, but some other people might say Southwest Nebraska. Who knows? But that'll help you start narrowing it down and give you a better shot at trying to find that prime location. But I'm really an advocate for find your own spot and don't try to go to the same spot that everybody else is going to try to find your own. Cause that's going to set you apart a lot faster than trying to get the same pictures that everybody else is getting. That's a really good point. What about you, Ron? I'm, I'm trying to find somebody because it's the funniest, it's the funniest thing I read. So DRB photo. He's, he's one of my favorite, uh, Darren Bennett, one of my favorite uh, deer and charismatic megafauna photographers. I, I love his stuff. He's got some great um, work out of Africa. In fact, I'd love to have him on the podcast someday. Um, but he, he puts the craziest location sometimes. It'll be a deer that, you know, another 50, 60 people have photographed. And he's got him in downtown Kansas City. Um, so be careful if you're trying to do that because some people will intentionally send you on a wild goose chase. Yeah. You don't want to be in downtown Kansas city looking for a mule deer buck. That's for sure. (laughs) But I laugh, I laugh every time I read it. It's, it's hysterical. Um, mine's pretty easy too. And it's, it's more general. I would say my favorite location is just the one that I spend the most time in and it's Wyoming as a whole. Um, like Jason, I spent a lot of time in Northwest Wyoming and Yellowstone Park in that area, uh, Grand Teton Park, Teton County. But Wyoming is just, you can go out and find wildlife anywhere, even in the, you know, the wide open plains. I was teasing Mike and Missy when they took their trip to uh, Alaska last year that they, you know, documented on the podcast. And they came through Wyoming, and I challenged them at one point to try to find. There's a about a hundred mile stretch of road between Casper and a little town called Shoshone, Wyoming, and I challenged them to try to find one spot in that 98 mile stretch of road that you could not see a pronghorn antelope, and it just can't be done. I mean, there's there's wildlife everywhere. There's pronghorn along the road. There's mule deer along the road. Once in a while, you can see an elk, there's coyotes, there's fox, there's all kinds of raptors and um, sage grouse. You, 
there's just any number of wildlife species and it just you know depends on the the season right now we're heading into july it's the hot season most wildlife is you know they're staying undercover for the majority of the day but you've got species like great blue herons that are still fishing you've got species like the the wyoming toad that you can find you know reptiles and amphibians are out in full force right now while it's warm so i i think the diversity in wyoming lends itself to being my favorite place and the only reason alaska isn't is because i haven't been able to spend as much time up there as i'd like i i love it every time i go to alaska it's just that place is magic for a wildlife lover and i i think that i i would challenge anybody to disagree with that it's just a truly magical place and uh, i could i could live there easily in a grass hut somewhere but um, but yeah, Wyoming is is far and away my favorite place to be, and that's oftentimes why I haven't traveled to other locations. I just enjoy being home and and the diversity that it offers. And I, like Jason said, going back to the other piece of that question, honestly, a lot of the locations are given to me or given to us by others. And so for us to give specific locations out that we've been entrusted with, I guess, it would be uh, it'd be irresponsible on my part, I would feel. And, and I want people to feel like they can share that kind of thing. And honestly, I don't typically ask people for locations unless I've offered them a, a reciprocal opportunity. And so I think, you know, that trading thing uh, works out too going back to what Jason said about doing your homework being willing to trade a good opportunity with someone for another opportunity of something that you might not have access to I think is another way that you can secure some some good spots and some great images I think that speaks to the network too right so if you are part of a camera club and you can forge some good relationships or some good friendships that's where that kind of stuff starts to happen and people will start sharing. But what you said, Ron, is really important. I think you really want to share, share and share alike. You know, everybody's got to, you know, you got to give to get and you just trade stuff out and that that's what will make it all work for everybody. But if, if somebody has a specific uh, request on a, a location and how to do it, I think we can, we're more than happy to help with that. If somebody called me and said, Hey, I want to go to Alaska. What's the best way to do this? You know, I've got a pretty good, I've got a lot of little shortcuts that you could take and, and have a really, I'm not going to tell you exactly where to go because there's a million places and it really depends on what you want to do, but like where to get your rental car, where to get your load up on food, what kind of shops are around. If you need to get, pick up some supplies. The first time I ever went to Alaska, it was, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, you know, and it's, you spend two or three days wasting time trying to figure that kind of stuff out. We're happy to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. Best piece of photography information I've gotten ever was from Michael and Mark Raycroft. And they said, go, what's the name of the, like the Walmart of Anchorage? Fred Meyer. Fred Meyer. Go to Fred Meyer, pick up two of the foam mattresses. It's going to be the best money ever spent. And so this kind of leads into the next question, but I threw two of those mattresses together and I'm looking at like these memory foam mattresses that are like 90 bucks and I almost pulled the trigger. And then all of a sudden I looked down the aisle and I'm like, no, that is the pile of stuff right there that those guys were talking about. I go over and get two of these, they're like four inch pieces of styrofoam and I, I bought two of them threw them in the back of the truck and that's where I slept for the next 10 well seven days because we ended up coming back to Anchorage early but that was the most comfortable camping I've ever done sleeping on the mattress in the back of a truck and that kind of goes to the next question which is and and we've had several people ask us this one also so I can't identify just one person but how do you go about you know we talk about car camping a lot how do you go about car camping? 
when you're photographing wildlife or on a, you know, Jason, you're probably the king of hit and run type weekend trips. So what's your yeah. strategy there? Yeah. So for me, you know, I've got, I've got a pickup truck. It's a Dodge 2500 mega cab and it's got a shell on it. And that was all intentional. I've actually had some, a seamstress friend of mine make some curtains for me for the back of it so I can have some privacy. And um, I built me a little platform in the back there. And I bought me one of those mattresses from Walmart, not from Fred Meyer, but from Walmart. <laughs> and I put a little uh, memory mattress on top of that to give me a little bit more comfort and put one of those um, plastic covers over that set up. And then I just use a sleeping bag. And so I've made myself a nice little, you know, mobile camping unit and um i haven't gone this far yet but i need to but i know some people that also just run their own line from their battery with a little um, um outlet that they can run back there so they can actually with an inverter and they just have it permanently affixed in their bed of their truck and so they can they can sit back there and they can watch and they can charge their equipment they can play on their laptop they can you know do a lot of different stuff back in the back of their um, pickup or their vehicle um, and then what I usually do is I'll, I'll take a cooler with me and I try to get me a, a good cooler that will hold ice well. And then I just, uh, load it up and bring like whatever kind of drinks I think I might want and some water. And another little thing I use a lot is a, um, holy cow, the, the name of it slipped in my mind. I don't know how you could forget the name of this. Um, <laughs> the stoves, the, Oh, the MSR stoves or the Coleman stoves? no. It's the oh jet boil, <laughs> jet boil. Thank you. Holy moly. Anyways, <laughs> I I have a jet boil and I actually have a a, a little uh, Coleman stove that actually folds up. It's a two burner, and it folds into a little round, you know, um, compact um, compactable unit. So if I want to cook something a little bit more fancy, I can do that. Um, and I just have set up myself to try to be as mobile as possible and have that stuff available to me. I can get up, I can warm up some water in the morning, and I can have some hot. Um, some hot cocoa or some uh, some oatmeal or whatever for breakfast. I can you know, I'll bring me some hard-boiled eggs that are already boiled. I just try to think, prepare ahead a little bit, right, and plan ahead. And then um, I just have all my equipment with me in the in the be- in the back seat of my truck, and it makes a very comfortable little camping spot. Now, one of the tricks is where do you stay, right? That's I think one of the bigger questions that people might have is not so much how do you set up your camping rig. And if you go online, you can do a lot of research and just do, just Google truck camping and you'll find all kinds of cool little, you know, setups in that with people have done with their trucks to, to camp out of the back of their trucks. And that's where I got a lot of my ideas. Um, but as far as finding locations, as long as you can find some, uh, some national forest or some uh, BLM around the area you're going to, you can always pull off the road and camp there and nobody's going to mess with you. Well, I mean, let me put no authorities are going to mess with you. <laughs> you know, you might get harassed by who knows what, but generally not. I've never had a problem. Um, but you can, if you can't get a campground in the location you go to, let's use Yellowstone for an example. If you're going to go to Yellowstone and you might want to just go ahead and tent and truck camp right inside the park and you can get yourself a camping spot and do that legally. Now, don't just pull off the side of the road inside the park because you will probably be rudely awakened by a ranger at some point in the night and you will be made to move and that will be a very uncomfortable situation. That's not a fun way to get woken up. I've never had that happen personally myself, but I know people that have. So, and they do patrol the parks looking for um, folks that are doing that. So um, just make sure you're abiding the rules there and get either a camp spot or if you don't want to pay for a camp spot. Um, then just go outside the park and find yourself some BLM, do a little research ahead of time and, um, find yourself a pullout or a, you know, a campground that's in the national forest that's close by, or just a spot that you can pull off on a dirt road somewhere, um, to go and, and do your camp, your uh, truck camping. Um, uh, but I don't know. I don't, I think that's about, that's about all the tricks or the little tips I can think of when it comes to truck camping. I can piggyback right a couple of things on there. I've been doing this for a long time, and in the beginning, I was like, you know what? I can just make it on sandwiches. And after five or ten days of sandwiches, you're like, this is not going to work. And what I've learned over the years is eating really good is really important. And if you can create some decent meals out in the field, 
it makes a world of difference. And I've just learned from other people. And, you know, we graduated from sandwiches to the mountain house freeze-dried stuff, which was, that was definitely a step up from the sandwiches. But then those things get old after a while too, right? There's a lot of little things you can do to make, to spice it up and have some really good food, which I think you perform better when you're, when you feel good and you've eaten good. And, you know, it's not impossible to do. I mean, Mexican food is really pretty easy to make out in the field. You can have a can of beans. A lot of times we used to, when we do Alaska, we would stay at a buddy's house when we first roll into town and we'd buy a bunch of steak and we'd buy some uh, chicken and we'd cook all that stuff, slice it all or cut it all up, cube it up or whatever, and we'd freeze it. And then we would put it in a nice cooler that it would hold that, that frozen stuff for, you know, five, six days and that makes the world a difference. So if you can make tacos or, you you know, you get some jalapenos, you get some salsa, you know, all that stuff comes in cans. So you can do pretty well. And all of a sudden you're eating really well. And then you're like, this is so much more fun. The other thing that I would add beyond the food, I don't have a big truck like Jason has. I have a little Toyota Tacoma. And I can fit barely in the back laying kind of on a diagonal. And it's not that comfortable. You have a lot more room in the back of a big truck. What I found, and this doesn't work in a national park, of course, but speaking to your Forest Service or BLM land, I found these cots that actually, when you fold them out, they actually have a tent that unfolds with them. So you've got a, it's basically just like setting up a tent, only you're up off the ground and you flip that sucker out and you crawl in and it can be a torrential downpour and you're going to stay dry. And like I said, you're up off the ground. It's much more comfortable than sleeping on a, even a mattress pad on the ground in a tent. You know, you're just, you just have a much more comfortable situation. So to to add to what you had, Jason, those are the two things that I would add is eat really well. And then your sleeping is so important because we don't, we all know you don't get enough of that anyways, especially this time of year. If you're well, like in the spring when we're shooting bears, you are up with the sun or before the sun, an hour, hour and a half before the sun to get to wherever you're going, right? And then it stays light in Canada. It'll stay light till what, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So then you're looking at what, four hours of sleep maximum? <laughs> so having comfy sleeping conditions is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, just real quick, you made me think of something I can, I think it's worth mentioning because the mountain houses, I've been there and done that for sure. And I've had some, <laughs> nothing to dog on Mountain House, but I've had some bad situations come from the Mountain House of, you know, <laughs> just to say, let's just call it a gut bomb. And maybe my stomach didn't react as well as I would have liked. Um, you know, there's a lot of preservatives and stuff in those Mountain Houses, but but there's options out there that, you know, folks that do a lot of backcountry um, hiking and camping and hunting, they will use these other meals. And, you know, Heather's Choice is a company that makes some really good meals that are not full of preservatives and they're, they're made all natural and they're made with some really good ingredients and um, you know, peak refuels, another one I can think of. And there's, there's three or four of them out there now that are making super healthy options for that type of a freeze dried, you know, add some hot water and let it sit for 20 minutes and you've got a really nice meal. And one of my favorites is there's a, the Heather's choice makes a dark chocolate bison chili and I'm telling you, it's as good as it sounds. <laughs> um, and, that, and to your point, when you're when especially in the spring or the fall when it's chilly, you know that's that's a great little pick me up and a and a great little you know something to look forward to 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 eat well. To your point, Mike, that's a really good point I think, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, you don't have to go to the mountain house option. You could, there's other options out there that that are worth looking into that are easy and quick and healthy. So, you know, when, Ron, we'll let you talk here in a sec. Sure. Right. <laughs> One other secret. Well, it's not a secret. It's just, it's so obvious, but I don't think anybody does it. And I've started to do it, but I'm not that good at it yet. We all have, we shoot early morning and we shoot late evening. And everybody lives their lives pretty similar, right? We all eat before we go to bed or we eat when we're done at the end of the day. What I've started to do is eat my big meal in the middle of the day. You know, when you're in that downtime, when you got that two or three hours where the light's just not good, I've found that if you go cook your freeze-dried meals or, you know, make some tacos or whatever, you've got time to do it. You get fueled up for the afternoon shoot, 
And then when you're done, you can actually just come back and eat a little snack and go to bed. You don't have to spend another hour preparing your meals and doing all that kind of thing. So I've just found that to be a way better. And plus, I think you sleep better. You know, if you load up on a bunch of food and then, you you know, sometimes you just, like you said, Jason, your stomach's not agreeing with it or whatever. It's just one of those situations where it's a way better situation to fuel up middle of the day and even if you know if there's a bunch of photographers around and and we're all going to eat at a restaurant i'll always suggest hey let's just go do that at lunch you know rather than trying to meet up after the shoot now if you're in the fall and it's getting dark early sometimes you have time to do that kind of thing but spring and summer and early fall it's better just to do it right in the middle of the day agreed (laughs) Ron, do you have anything to add? <laughs> well, I think I probably. Can you guys hear that? Is somebody that playing stomach? a guitar? <laughs> yeah, really loud stereo. No, we can't hear it too bad. Okay. So I think I would agree with everything that you guys said. Um, I use do the same thing. I take a, you know, a memory foam mattress cover, fold it in half, just a cheap one, and that's what I sleep on. In the, in the back of the vehicle, I take, you know, my little uh, one-burner stove. I'm an oatmeal guy, so I, after morning shoot, I'll make myself a, a bowl of oatmeal. I still have. If anybody's ever in Alaska and would like some oatmeal, there's a whole bunch at Mike's house still. I got too much. But I, I just take a, a tote, and I pretty much keep everything in the, in the tote, stove, um, food. That keeps some ice out. If you have that kind of problem, um, you can set it out of the vehicle as long as you're not in bear country and keep the rodents out of it. But that's pretty much what I do for my kitchen. And then, uh, you know, you're not really sleeping that much when it's dark. I don't, when I'm doing those kind of hit and run trips, I don't worry too much about downloading images. I just make sure that I've got enough cards to cover me for the weekend. And then as soon as I get home, that's when I do my, you know, your dual backup or your redundant backup, whatever your system is, and then download them and and take a look at them. I don't do too much of that in the field when I'm car camping. Um, But the, like you guys said, I think the biggest thing is staying mobile and multiple reasons for that. Number one, location. So if I want to get to multiple things, if I have a good shoot on one subject, I want to go try something else and I'm able to do that. Uh, The other thing is weather. And we've talked about it often, not necessarily, you know, if you shoot where it's going to be bluebird sky, you've got that couple hours in the morning, couple hours in the evening and the rest of your day is pretty much burnt unless you can get into the shade somewhere or shoot in the, in the timber. But that's, you know, anybody's guess where the wildlife's going to be there. So I keep myself mobile. So if, if, there's inclement weather if i'm gonna have cloud cover all day i might change locations just based on that so that i can get more opportunity um so that's another reason and then you know having everything all in one place and not have to worry too much about it is just extra little bit of security as well as being prepared to do that even if you have a hotel room because the guy that you're staying in the hotel room with might be a, a snorer or something like that and you might have to go sleep in the car so, <laughs> if you want to sleep it, anyways <laughs> yeah it covers all kinds of different bases so yeah that's that's kind of a quick cover of of how we do that and i think everybody's going to find their own system but i think you can take a nugget or two from you know the things that we just talked about there when Excellent. and if we ever get a chance to get together in the field I don't know, hopefully maybe this fall, that would be a cool little video to do, right? If we're all going to be just car camping and, you know, we could just run around and just do a little two or three minute thing on everybody's little setup and just show all the, because there's a bunch of little things that I think we didn't mention that make life a little bit easier out there. And it would be just fun to just point some of those things out and just be a good way to learn. Yeah. You know, real quick, too, just because you mentioned this wrong, but I think it's worth mentioning from a safety standpoint that because this is something that if you're in Yellowstone or Teton or some of the national parks where there's bears present, 
you definitely don't want to just leave your cooler and that on the ground outside your vehicle. What I do, and you don't want to leave it in the back with you, okay? That's a bad idea. <laughs> so what I do is I put that stuff in the in the truck, in the actual cab of the truck with me, or not with me, but in the cab of the truck where it's, so it's away from me. And then if I ever hear something rummaging around, which I've never had happen at this point, you know, I've, I've got my bear spray in that that I can react accordingly back there with me in the bed of my truck. Um, but again, like I said, I think I've only had one time where I got woke up and my, my truck was actually shaking and rocking around. And I went over and I got up the next morning. I, I never could see anything because it was too cold and the windows were fogged up. But it was a little, you know, it, it rattled me a little bit. You know, like, what the heck, you know, is that? And it's something rubbing on my truck, I'm sure. I was thinking it was a bear. So I got up the next morning and I could, there was no prints in the in the ground or anything. But I could definitely see where something had rubbed up against my truck and it left a little bit of hair. And it was definitely it was a bear. And I could actually even see how my window of my door where I put my cooler in that. And I could see paw prints and the nose print where he had, you know, got up on his hind legs and checked the, the truck to see what was in there. So, you know, it was not a big deal. Everything was fine. I went back to sleep. He left, never caused me any problems. But, you know, you don't want that in the bed of your truck. You don't want him peeking in the back when you're in there, too. That might that might have been a little bit worse of a situation. So, so just from a safety standpoint, make sure you're thinking about that stuff. Don't put your water back there with you. Don't put your food back there with you. You know, put that stuff in the front so that you're away from it if something were to happen. But. Especially if you're eating a lot of salmon. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're in Alaska and you're eating a lot of salmon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Now, this one is a little bit more of a technical question. And this comes to us from uh, Caleb Quanbeck. And Caleb says, I'm just starting to enter the world of wildlife photography. I recently graduated with an associate's degree in photography, and I'm currently trying to figure out what color profile to use on my MacBook Pro to edit photos. I have had some prints done, and I've found that they match the Apple RGB, but the colors don't match very well with viewing photos online and social media um, on pages with my phone. Do you have a recommendation? Should I do two different edits? And do I need to just switch where I get my photos printed? Okay, this is a really good question. And I, it probably takes somebody that's a little bit more technical than myself. I can tell you what I know is that most printers will use their setup to read a file that was, that was processed in sRGB. Or when you export from Lightroom, use srgb now srgb has less colors than adobe it has less co colors than uh, the pro rgb that's the new one and that actually has the most or runs the full almost 99 percent of the full color gamut as i understand srgb has a smaller percentage of the full color gamut but that's what printers are set up to use when they print your images. Um, for me, and you guys probably are going to have something a little bit different. When I get them on my phone, I honestly do a second edit just with the edit on my phone because I know what's going to look good on other people's mobile devices then and what's going to look good on social media. And it doesn't really matter if I have a, you know, a color-corrected image on my phone as long as it you know as long as it looks good for social media and so I'll edit it twice I'll have my regular edit that I'll do on my laptop or my desktop computer and that's what's going to go to the printer those monitors are color corrected and that's that's probably another thing that we should address in talking about this is you may have a monitor that's not color corrected so when you send it to send it to the printer, you're not necessarily going to get a match. So make sure that you calibrate your monitor and that, you know, a spider, um, what is it? Is it spider monkey or is it, are they color monkey? Color monkey. Right now. Mine's, mine's a color monkey by x right Yeah. Color monkey or spider. Uh, there's several different options. Some of them are, you know, more expensive than others. It's about $150, but 
if you're going to do a lot of printing and you know that that's that's in your future, it's a great investment because it's going to save you the trouble of getting a print back that doesn't look like what you submitted to the printer off of your monitor. I don't know if that answers your question or not, Caleb, but how about you guys? Mike's going to be the more technical guy on this one for sure. So <laughs> um, I'll throw in, I just, the first thing I thought of when I heard this question was exactly what you said, Ron. And it's, to me, it sounds like the exact same issue I was having a few years ago and was very frustrated with. And once I got that color corrector, that color calibrator, the color monkey that I have, and there are options out there. You don't have to just go get the color monkey. There's other options. But once I got that, um, it actually checks for ambient light at the same time too. So it adjusts the brightness of my monitors automatically as well. And that was nice. That's, that was the solution to my problem. That's the problem I was having. And I don't actually edit anything differently. I actually edit for sRGB, the printer I use that I've got their printer profile from, which is another little trick. If you reach out to the print shop, a lot of times they'll have a color profile that they use to print to, and they can send that to you. And then you can, or you can download it from their website in most cases. And then you can load that into your Lightroom or whatever program you're using, and you can do a check against it to make sure all the colors are going to look right. Um, and so that's something I've learned to do. And after you do it enough, you kind of get a feel for what's going to look right and what's not. But it's a good check for yourself to make sure you're not going to be missing any colors. Um, but once I was able to do that and I did that calibration and I used that same printer, my images come out to be exactly what I expect to be. Um, and I don't have any issues with them looking different than I did on my monitor versus what they look like on my phone as well. So sometimes you'll get a little difference just because of it, you know, it's on a smaller device and the way the images load and some of those things. I'm sure there's some technical stuff back there that I'm missing, but not enough that it's an issue in my mind. Um, and they still look like what I would expect them to look like. But so, yeah, that, I don't know if that answers the question, but to me, if you're not doing that, that's the first thing I'd go do to Ron's point is go get that calibrator and see if that fixes your problem. I think you guys nailed it all. I think um, if you have your monitor color calibrated and if you're downloading the profiles from your wherever you're getting your stuff printed, and then I'm like you, Ron, I'll just use sRGB with when I do anything on the phone. So I'll just, I'll just crank out 20 images that I might want to use on social media in sRGB, throw them to my phone, and then I'll just make any adjustments using Lightroom or even the photo app on my phone just to adjust how I think it's going to look on my phone, which is probably going to be just like everybody else's phone. And so it's, you know, it's not going to be 100% because everybody's a little different. And But I think you guys nailed it. And I don't print so much anymore. I used to print a lot, but here lately it's more video stuff. So I haven't been printing too terribly much. One thing that I did do when I was printing a lot is I found a local printer. This guy was just a local fine art printer, and I would just take my raw images down there, and he and I would work on them together, and he just knew his printers. So I would just tell him, yes, this is right. That's exactly what I want it to look like on his monitor. And then he knew what he had to do to that file to get it to look like that, on whether it was printed on a Canon or it was printed on an Epson or it was printed on what other, whatever kind of printer he had. And he, has a, he had a bunch of them because of all the different sizes. And that worked out really well. But you pay a little bit more for that, but you get exactly what you want. And I would say, yeah, if you don't do that, if you're using somebody like Bay Photo or, you know, one of the, the bigger mass producers, Miller, there's several of them around the country, Artbeat, uh, do a test print. So pay for an 8 by 10 of the image that you're going to have printed or an 8 by 12 whatever the case may be. Just pay for that, have them ship it to you before you have some somebody spend, you know, five or six hundred dollars on an image. Make sure that they're going to get what you intend for them to get. And you know, it's an extra step, takes a little bit more time, but once you have that file correct, you know you can lock it away and anybody else that wants to buy that image, you know that it is they are going to get what they see. So, but yeah, a lot of good points there. Guys, I think we've had a great group of questions. I've got some others actually. And what I'll ask everyone to do, if you've made it with us this far on the podcast, send us your a video of you asking questions and we'll do some of these, put them on YouTube. I've got a few of those already gathered up. 
Uh, if you see us in the field and you have a question, understand we're going to ask you to do it on video so that we can use that in the future. Um, but please don't hesitate to come up. We've also had a, a couple of people say, hey, saw you here or there, or saw Jason here or saw Michael. If you guys see us out in the field, please take the time to stop, say hello. Um, never too busy. If, if we are, we'll just go shoot beside each other and have some fun. Uh, if, you know, if we're in the middle of something and then when, when that opportunity ends, we'd love to visit with you and find out what it is you like about the show and, and what we can do better. And I always because, have a truckload of stickers in my truck. Yeah. Wild and exposed stickers. I don't have a truckload, but I have several. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank you guys again for listening to another episode of Wild and Exposed. Uh, again, keep the questions coming. We are nailing down. We've had several requests for a certain guest, and I'm going to leave this as a teaser. But we're nailing down a time here in the very near future to uh, – to get with him and and bring him to you he's a, a european photographer so it's something a little bit different and man i'll tell you i'm a little bit starstruck on this one i can't wait to to have him on and we hope that we can figure out a way to get jason on with us as well so that the the schedules mesh um but excited for what the future holds and for some of the people that we've reached out to and and have kind of waiting in the wings. And again, thanks for being patient with us as we work through the issues with uh, Squarespace and getting our podcasts up on your favorite podcast app. Again, thanks for listening to Wild and Exposed. I look forward to talking to you next time. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review and make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town. Mm -mm. Round and round the world we'll go.